Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniker and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content. If you're listening on YouTube, hit that like button on this video. And if you're listening on any other platform, your five-star rating and review are a great way to support the show. Thank you for your support. Today we are talking about mistakes and lessons learned. I want to talk to you about a company that I almost invested in and that I am really glad that I chose not to invest in a few years ago. Now, I'm going to name this company not out of any intent to uh, degrade this specific company. I actually really like what they're doing in terms of their product and technology and everything. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to use it because I think examples are helpful. Examples will allow you to dig into the company yourself, learn about it, and learn what I'm seeing so that you can use to recognize patterns in the future. So we're talking about mistakes I you narrowly avoid and how you can learn lessons not just from the mistakes you make, but also from the mistakes you almost make or the mistakes of other investors and that sort of thing. So I'm going to talk to you about today about mCloud Technologies. The ticker is MCLD in Canada on the TSXV and it's MCLDF on the US OTC markets. So this is an OTC stock for U.S. investors. Um, for foreign investors, you can buy it either in Canada or in U.S. But what mCloud Technologies does, this is how they describe themselves. So if you look at their press releases, and they put out a lot of press releases, they describe themselves as a leading provider of asset management solutions combining IoT, Internet of Things, cloud computing, artificial intelligence, AI, and analytics. So that's just a quote straight from the starter of their own press releases. So <laughs> what immediately jumps out about this company when you're doing any sort of initial dive on it is they hit everything positive about the ESG stuff. They're hitting everything positive in terms of what is going to trigger an investor for what they want to hear. This is a company that is doing things that hit all the right notes. They have, um, in large part, they are a SaaS company, so S-A-A-S, their software as a service. What they do is they sell their software and they earn um, monthly and annual fees based upon the software that they have. And so that's this artificial intelligence, that's this big data analytics, very future oriented company doing lots of positive things. But it's not just that the way that 
you when you go through and you dive into their website, you're starting to learn about how they drive energy efficiency, how they're big into green energy. They support wind turbines. They improve the efficiency of HVAC units, um, which is air conditioning, heating and air conditioning. And they improve the um, decarbonization efforts of oil and gas plants, reducing um emissions and improving their efficiencies. And they're doing all of this with AI and analytics and their big data analysis methods. So this is what attracted me to the company. This is what is really interesting. The company has a great product. They are making very clear improvements. They save their customers lots of money. They lead to a lot of improvements in environmental impact. And so they hit all the right notes. This is a company that when you start to dig into it, you're going to be really excited. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. This is what I want to be a cautionary note. So again, some of you listening to this are going to be really interested in this company and are going to be interested in investing in it. And it might work out great for you. I'm going to tell you about my story. I'm going to tell you about how when I looked at this company, I got caught up in it and I am glad that I didn't invest. So when we look back a few years ago, and again, I was looking at this company. I don't remember exactly when, whether it was 2018, 2019, but it was a few years ago. And it was very attractive to me. Um, This was a company that was trading at about one times expected sales for the coming year. And this was a SaaS company trading at about a one-time expected sales. And when you look at comparables and compare that to something within the U.S., a lot of the U.S.-based SaaS companies were trading at 10 times sales or 15 times sales. So you had the opportunity for a potential 10-bagger simply due to multiple expansion when the company would list itself in the U.S., which of course they talked about. They talked about uplisting onto the NASDAQ and how that was their plan to do within the next 12 months. Still, three years later, it's not yet been done. So what are the problems here? What happened and why is it that this company hasn't worked as an investment? Why do I feel glad that I didn't make an investment? So I was going to make a very big investment in this company. I was going to put 20% of my portfolio into this company. I was interested in buying into their private placement. They were having a big private placement event um, where they were offering five-year warrants in addition to um, equity. So basically, if you were to put in $10,000, you would get $10,000 worth of shares. But for each share you got, you would also get a warrant. And that warrant then would allow you to buy an additional share anytime within the next five years at a very attractive strike price. So basically you were almost doubling your money. You were getting warrants for free, which could have incredible value if they were going to hit their growth targets and everything like that. So I was super excited, super interested in trying to find a way to invest in this company, which is quite difficult as a U.S. investor, um, especially for the private placement aspect of it. And so there was a lot of stuff I was doing. I could always buy it in the open market, but then you wouldn't get warrants, and the warrants made it quite attractive. So what went wrong? Well, if we just look at the stock price, you can pull up a chart yourself. Um, again, the ticker is MCLDF. Um, 
for the OTC ticker. And if I just look, you know, back in August of 2018, the stock was at around $5.10 per share. And currently the stock is at $1.40 per share. Again, these are US dollars. It's a Canadian company. You have to do some conversions, but it's it's looking at like a loss of like 70% on the stock price over the last two to two and a half to three years. So a 70% decline is what I would have faced if I'd invested in this company. Now there's some volatility here. Um, you know, within a few months, I would have seen a 50% loss, but then that I would have seen, you know, gains to make up for that over the next year, year and a half, and it's gone up and down and such, but it's basically gone sideways and down over the last three years through the period that I would have been an investor. So what was so interesting about this company? Well, I've talked about a lot of the key things here. This was a SaaS company trading at a cheap multiple, low low price to revenue ratio. And they were saying all the right things. They had all of the ESG, um, that's the environmental safety and governance, um, selling points. They were talking about big data. They were in an artificial intelligence Um everything that you want to see in a company that's going to get a really high multiple when it's trading in the United States. So I figured you could invest money and over a three to five year time frame, I was looking at maybe a 10x, maybe a 20x when you took into account the the ability to own the warrants on this stock. And it looked like a very, very attractive investment. So what were the problems? Where did this go wrong? Well, the first problem is this company was cash flow negative. Now, according to the management, this company was cash flow negative because all the money was being reinvested in growth. The company had cash coming in from those contracts, and those contracts had a very quick turnaround and return, you know, 12-month paybacks, 18-month paybacks. You know, you had three-year contracts. You were quickly increasing returns on your money with the contracts that they had. And they expected high retention rates. They showed very clear improvements in efficiency savings for their customers. And then they took a cut of the efficiency savings. So you were a company that was getting both software monthly payments and also um, skin in the game where they were able to earn a percentage of the gains in energy efficiency and, and cost savings that they were providing to their customers. So this is a, a very good situation for the company. They were providing a costless solution almost to um, retail establishments, to wind turbines, to oil and gas plants. They were offering their services in a way that you didn't need a capital project to install it. So I could see lots of ways where these things could be sold very quickly and sold and expanded, but they were cash flow negative. And, you know, management was saying all the right things. What was happening was while they were cash flow negatives because they were growing so fast. Now, you see this with all the major SaaS companies, all the big technology companies, they're all growing really quickly and they're cash flow negative. So it's like, okay, that makes sense. This is a micro cap company. Um, I can't remember what the market cap was at the time. Um, it might've been 10, $20 million, something like that. It was pretty small, um, 10, 20, $30 million, either US or Canadian, doesn't really matter. Um, but it was a small micro cap company. It was growing rapidly, but it was priced at a relatively cheap multiple. 
And it, their plan was to basically 10x their revenue over the next five years. And when you combine 10x their revenue over the next five years, plus a 10x possible multiple increase, you're talking about massive, massive potential stock gains. So where were they using their money? Well, they basically were using their money to do the installs. They would install it up front, get paid up on the back end, and then they'd, of course, pay and hire new salespeople. They were rapidly hiring new salespeople in new regions, signing new contracts, and every month you were getting positive press releases. And that's one of the other big problems is they were very promotional. (coughs) This was a management team that was putting out positive press releases. They were doing interviews on YouTube. They were um, getting their name out there. They had all sorts of positive um, repertoire about the green energy and the energy savings and everything you want to hear and see. These are all positives. But why then wasn't the, the stock working? And so, well... One of the thing was is they were very promotional because they were cash flow negative. And what was happening is there was regular ongoing stock issuance and dilution. And this was the big, big red flag that should have caught me. So not only were the shares consistently being diluted, but they were being diluted both with shares and warrants. Now, that's what attracted me to the company is that I could have the potential to get warrants which would give me additional upside on the stock if everything went well. But there was an embedded assumption in my head that, you know, this was the last time that they were going to be issuing a private placement. This was the last time they would be issuing shares or warrants and that you had a lot of talk about how this year they were going to become cash flow positive again. They didn't need to raise additional money in the future. And so, the deal I was getting was like a once in a lifetime deal. This was a, you know, this was a one-time thing. Now, what should have keyed me on it was that in the past, they had already done private placements. They already had warrants available. They already had debentures available um, and had been issued in the past to insiders and investors. And they diluted consistently over the previous two, three, four years as the company had been getting started up. So the balance sheet wasn't clean. It wasn't like there were just shares beforehand. There were also warrants. And what you need to understand is that the history can be useful to help you predict the future. If management diluted in the past, you should expect management to dilute in the future. So when you look at it, you have to consider this because what ended up happening is each year since then, they've had additional stock issuance and additional dilution, and they've done this one or two times or more. I haven't looked at all of them, but it's I've quickly pulled up a few where they've continued to issue and dilute shareholders over the last few years. So the company fueled its growth by diluting shareholders, not by internally generated cash flows. So just because the company achieves its growth targets doesn't mean that the shareholders got to benefit from that growth. So this is also ties into why the promotional aspect of management should have been a clue. Management had to be promotional because they needed lots of investor interest in order to keep the company going. 
Without additional cash being funneled into the company, the growth would have collapsed and they would have been forced to grow only as fast as their internally generated cash flows. But they weren't generating cash flows, which means the company would have shrunk or had a default because they weren't able to do it without constant input of cash. As an investor, I don't want to put cash into a company. I want the, comp- the companies to give me cash. I want the cash flow to come out of the company and flow to me. So that should have been a big concern. One of the other things that really got me interested was this idea of uplisting to the NASDAQ. So there's been many examples, and you can look at them up or you can hear about them, especially in microcap circles, about intent to uplist to the NASDAQ. You'll have a lot of really small companies, $10 million, $50 million, $100 million, $200 million companies that are trading either OTC or trading on a Canadian exchange, talking about uplisting to the NASDAQ. And what that is, is basically instead of being listed in Canada, now they're going to list their stock in the U.S. Or instead of being listed only on the OTC markets in the U.S., they're going to be listed in the NASDAQ on a major exchange in the United States. And what that does is it increases liquidity. It increases investor interest. Some institutions can't buy your stock unless you're on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. And typically, not always, but typically, U.S. listed stocks trade at a higher valuation than non-U.S. listed stocks. So it's a catalyst. It's a catalyst that drives stock higher that's not at all related to the fundamentals of a business. But it sounds good. And you can look at a lot of examples where stocks have doubled or tripled after they uplift to the NASDAQ. Well, the problem is, is they were talking about uplisting to the NASDAQ within the next six months or within the next 12 months when I was looking at it. And that was back in 2018, 2019. And the company is still not listed on the NASDAQ. But I remember the entire time I was watching it and looking at it, which lasted at least 12 months, they were always talking about how the uplisting was just around the corner. And this is a way to drive interest in their, in giving them money to continue growing the business because they needed that money to continue this growth wheel. Another problem that I had, they had mergers and acquisitions. So when they would forecast growth, they for, they forecasted growth that included non-organic growth. So you see, when I think about growth, there's two sides. There's organic growth and non-organic growth. Organic growth is the growth of your current business and new customer ads that you're able to earn from your business. Your salespeople go out and earn a new sale. That's organic growth. Your current customers choose to spend more money with you or buy more of your products. That's organic growth. Non-organic growth is acquisitions. Non-organic growth is where you go out and purchase another business that's 5% of your current sales, and then you add that 5% of additional revenue to your revenue and say that's 5% growth. The problem is that was requiring an outlay above and beyond what you're reporting. So normally that's disguised. So if you're, if you're growing at 30% a year, but only 5% is organic growth and 25% is non-organic, that can be good or bad depending upon whether you're diluting to do that. If you're not diluting, if your internally ca- cash flows are buying those businesses, if you're buying it with cash, then it really is 30% growth. But if you issue 
new shares in order to grow 30%, then your growth rate is really only the net 5%. And so what happened was, as I looked at this 10x growth and said, oh, they're going to 10x their revenue in five years, that's going to be great for me. But if they have to issue 10x as many shares as they currently have to get there, well, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't provide me any value. And that's what you started to see happen. I saw a few acquisitions take place where what they did was they bought a competitor and they bought another competitor and they combined the business. And then now they have three companies and they have new industries. And each time they buy one, the company gets bigger, but the share count goes up by 30%. The share count goes up by 50%. The share count doubles. And yes, the company's growing and management is now managing a bigger, larger company with more products and more sales. But the shareholders are losing per share value, or at least it's not growing in per share value as much as you think. Revenue might have tripled, but if the stock also if the stock issuance tripled, then I didn't see all the benefit. And that's really where we see the problem here. And that's the problem that I had and fortunately kept me from investing in the business. Because if your dilution is required, it makes it absolutely impossible to model out a per share return. So the big problem here is if a company is cash flow negative, they're going to do all sorts of things in order to solve that. They can't grow on their own. They don't have the cash to grow. They need to be promotional. They need to talk about catalysts. They need to talk about very positive um, things like green energy, energy efficiency, artificial intelligence. If everything sounds good or sounds too good to be true, that should be a warning sign. And what I realized was, is that the only way to make money on this investment was exactly what management was talking about. They were talking about liquidity events. They were talking about offloading shares to others and not talking about how they were going to make profits and cash flow. You see, they wanted to build a billion dollar business and sell that business to another company. And then that would be a liquidity event that cashed them out. And the whole way along, they'd get options, they'd get warrants, they'd get issuance of shares to themselves as executives and to many other investors. But as long as they reached the liquidity event in the end, they would make out okay. And so what I've learned is a few lessons here. I don't want to buy promotional companies. If a company is putting out a lot of press releases, if a company is putting out investor presentations that sound really good, that look really good, and they're consistently hyping that, they're giving a lot of interviews, that's not a good sign. I want the companies that don't need to talk about themselves for you to be attracted to them. I want the companies with the high returns on investment, the profitable returns on investment, Lots of cash flow. I want the companies that don't need to be promotional because they don't need your cash. They're distributing cash instead of bringing in investor cash. I don't want to buy companies that dilute. I don't want to see the share count going up. And I certainly don't want to see the share count going up 5%, 10%, 20% per year. That should have been a big red flag 
This should have stopped me from considering it really early on. But I spent a lot of time thinking about this company because everything sounded so great. The growth was so high. The valuation wasn't that bad for a company that was just about to turn cash flow positive. But for me, I also don't want to buy companies that can't self-fund their growth. Now, this ties in with the dilution point. This ties in with the promotional point. I want the growth to be generated by internally generated cash flows. I want them to sell a product, which allows them to make more product, which they can sell to new customers, and to grow by that virtuous cycle. And I don't want share issuance to be a part of that. I don't want debt issuance to be a part of it. I want self-funded, high returns on capital growth. Insider ownership also does not equal skin in the game. See, this was the thing. The management owned a lot of stock. They owned a lot of stock options. They had invested at prices that were similar to mine. They were buying along with us for these types of issuances. Some would say that's skin in the game. But it was an asymptomatic, like... It was a payoff that doesn't match. They would get an extraordinary payoff with a liquidity event or with uplisting because they have these built-in options. They were getting issued options. They're diluting the company. And as the company grows bigger, they can get more options at better prices. And that's not a shareholder's interest. It's not in a shareholder's interest to grow at no co- at all costs. And so there was a misalignment and there wasn't skin in the game, even though there was insider ownership. So for me, a lesson is, is that just because insiders own stock doesn't mean that they have skin in the game. It's a little bit of a complicated take, but I think it's a valuable one. Finally, my fifth takeaway, be wary of uplisting as a catalyst. I see this with a lot of microcap companies, and to me, it's a red flag now. I don't want to see a company talking about uplisting. To me, that means that management is thinking about something other than creating value. They're talking about catalysts, and I don't want to hear about catalysts. I want to hear about how they're making their business better, not how they're making their stock better. So those are my five lessons for today. Number one, don't buy promotional companies. Number two, don't buy companies that dilute. Number three, don't buy companies that can't self-fund growth. Number four, insider ownership does not equal skin in the game. And number five, be wary of uplisting as a catalyst. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Full show notes for this episode are available on my website at diyinvesting.org. If you'd like to support the show, you can support the show financially as a patron at diyinvesting.org slash P-A-T-R-O-N. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor.
The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.